Hi everyone, welcome to Such Good Feeling. In today's episode, I'm talking to a legendary producer, engineer and remixer with the most incredible history of success and still having hits today. His remix style is so identifiable and so inspirational to me, whether it be as part of the world-beating PWL Hit Factory team or in his own right. So I'm delighted to welcome the mix master himself, Pete Hammond. Hi Pete, how you doing? I'm well, thanks Steve. Yeah. Good. When did... um when did mix how did mix master happen when did that come into the equation well the name yeah I, I had nothing to do with it it was just waterman used to put it on the records it was phil was a mix master first and then i took over from phil and i became the uh mix master too mix master too all oh, right the sequel oh, we just mix master it was <laughs> pete good. mix master hammond or pete hammond mix master with other different variations and yeah it's good it's not it's listen it's a nice one to have yeah it's a nice one to have um so i always like starting with these things um just to kind of get a bit of history about you and 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 always interested in um the musical landscape of your house growing up um when you're a kid you know what what's what records what are you listening to on the radio what are your parents listening to what's what's going on the first thing i remember a piece of music was a song called don't throw bouquets at me okay and and i was only little and little and and i thought i had visions of this bloke throwing buckets of water over somebody you know and because <laughs> i didn't know what a bouquet was at that age. yeah <laughs> and then um growing up i don't remember much until it was, it was don't forget it was in the 40s you know it was mm-hmm. so it was quite different to the music today it was i remember glenn miller and my mum and dad used to go to parties and dance to roll out the barrel and yeah. we for that well on the piano and all that stuff you know yeah but i was, really wasn't into music until um till the shadows came along i think it was really no okay. it wasn't it was Dwayne eddie right and eddie cochran eddie cochran when i heard that guitar thing at the beginning i thought oh, i want to do that i want to know how to do that and i kept playing the intro of the record over and over and over again we, had, we got a stereogram by then and uh and then it was eddie Cochran. i got really into Dwayne eddie after that i mean the twangy guitar and I was really disappointed when I bought an album of his. It was all banjo music. <laughs> I thought, oh, that's no good. Oh, no. <laughs> I don't Nobody like wants that. <laughs> no. Um, anyway, but apart from that, those were my first sort of inspirations. And then, of course, we started getting groups together. And um, and then the shadows came on the scene. And I, I got my mum and dad to buy me an acoustic guitar. They wouldn't buy me an electric one. Didn't have the money. And my mate across the road, Johnny, had an electric one. And... And he used to blast it out. He couldn't play a note. It just used to make a lot of noise with it, the echo chamber on and everything. <laughs> and we fell out. And then I learned to play. I went to see a, a band at a working man's club with my mum and dad. They, they were playing bingo. And I was just hanging out. And this band was playing Apache. And they were doing all the, the shadows moves and everything. And I watched them um, doing their step walk, the shadows walk. Yeah, I don't know if you remember that. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, when they started to play Apache up, during, and I, I looked at his fingers, where he had his fingers, and I, I Got exactly right positioning. I got home that night and I, I played this chord, ring on the guitar. Mum said, Oh, don't do that, you wake the neighbours up. Anyway, I learned uh, I learned pretty quickly after that how to play and um, got a few Burt Whedon books and play in a day and all that stuff, you know. Learned all my chords and uh, learned how to play lead. And then I made friends with my mate John again. And he couldn't believe that I was playing guitar and he was still just making a noise. Mm. And he, how'd you do that? How'd you do that? So I said, <laughs> So we, we started playing together and then we we started to think about getting a group together, which we did back in, well, I don't know what year it was. I was about 15, I think. So I've been about uh, 62, something like that. Around about that age. 
And is there, obviously guitar was always your, your main, your initially your main instrument, was it? No. Oh. Well, it want, I wanted it to be, but John was bigger than me and he started playing lead guitar and he had a lead guitar and I didn't. So All right. I've, I was relegated to bass. Okay. Well, less strings and less notes. But I, I actually thoroughly enjoyed playing bass. So I really, I had a real feel for it and, um, I used to play all the Motown riffs and everything. You know, my band eventually ended up playing lots of Motown music, and I was really good at the Motown bass lines. I studied them like mad, you know. And yeah. we used to, we had a band with two girls, my wife and another girl singing, John's girlfriend. And we used to play all this Motown stuff. We used to pack places out around the area where we live. I think the Motown thing is really interesting as well. And, and I've spoken to a few people on this about people that are in cover bands and. Uh, the things that come in handy later on down the line when you spend oh, a lot right, of yeah. time deconstructing how a record is made. I mean, it doesn't get better than a Motown record. So if you're going out every weekend learning Motown, you're literally learning song structure, you're learning arrangement, you're learning everything by deconstructing from the best. It wasn't just Motown, though. It was the glam rock era as well. I was um, yeah. When we used to play, we used to play a bit of everything, glam rock, um, a bit of blues, a bit of everything, like a bit of reggae. I also think that, and I, this is kind of how my brain works because I come from a remixing background and I wonder if yours is too, whereby you almost have, by doing what you've done when you're, even when you're younger and you're learning these songs, you have a way of isolating stuff in your head. So if you hear, when a normal person hears a full record, you can kind of deconstruct it to yes, can, just yeah. listening to the bass line, just listening to the guitar, just listening to the, the vocal. Yeah, exactly. I, and it's, it's, I'm doing that right this second, actually. I'm actually... <laughs> I've actually been asked to remake um, Phil Harding's um, mix of uh, um, Someone in My House, The Dead or Alive. Thing. Dead or Alive, yeah. I'm just doing it as a private job for somebody. Okay. And I'm pulling it to pieces in my, he- in my head as I do it. And sometimes I'm like, what the bloody hell is that? I can't. F-. And then I think, what would he have done? What would they have done? And yeah. because I know how the work process goes on and went on, you can, you can pick out and uh, unravel it. But yeah, it is. Um, the, the one thing about most people is when they stop a CD or a record, it stops dead. Mm. But when you stop the tape or the, the computer, whatever, you hear all the echoes going on. Mm. And I sit there, I think, now what would it sound like if I stopped it now? And I think that's what I would hear. Yes. And that's how I, I achieve the, uh, get the results, so to speak. That's really interesting to hear that. There's some, um, there's some really cool new AI that's been around for the last um, year or so, which is, which is very similar to what Charles Martin used when he did the, um, started doing the 5-1 stuff for the Beatles, which effectively will make stems from a stereo source. I've been um, hearing about this. Yeah, I, I yeah. can't imagine how it works. It's it's very clever. It's an AI. I mean, it's obviously a bit squidgy because it's, it's yeah. doing that. But I mean, you can, I mean, it, you can do it a little bit in RX anyway. But there's another one that um, that I've been working with, and it will give you the drum part, the guitar part, the bass part, just kind of filtered out. But it's yeah. quite handy when when you're talking about the things you're talking about. I have yeah. to do it. Yeah. I work on a show. One of the shows I work on is called 80s Classical, which is symphony orchestra with 80s um, artists. And um, I, I have to reconstruct the tracks that are behind the symphony orchestra. Yeah. And as you say, sometimes you listen to things and you go, what is that? Like, yeah. what are they actually doing? I know. I know. And <laughs> very often there are tiny little sounds in there. Mm. Without them, they don't sound right. And a lot of people with mixing, they don't realise it's what's, what you don't hear is what makes it sound good. Yeah. Um, I, I was tasked with doing that. Do you know the, the big reunion show that went on? Yes, I did, yeah. yeah I, I did. did a lot of the music for that. They they gave me all these tracks um to recreate. Yeah. And and I got them I got them so close you couldn't tell the difference on them. 
But, that's um, incredible. That's a real um, skill, though. I think it's a real. I can, I can play them side by side, and you won't you won't tell which is which. I think the other tricky thing, the tricky thing sometimes that people get wrong as well, and um, is that thing where they think more is going on than actually is. So actually, especially, and we'll get onto it a bit later, but especially since, and you know, you, uh, you and Phil a, a lot had that thing of kind of using lots of stereo delays on synths. Yeah. So it feels like they're more rhythmic than they actually yeah, are. Exactly, yeah. But the, say, the actual original part Quite isn't simple. that complicated. No. That's true. So it's yeah. it's kind of like people we are did hearing the same, did the same with the percussion. Yeah, but I mean, we weren't the only ones doing that. Other people used to put delays on percussion to make it sound more comfortable. Man, yeah. man used to do that with his percussion. He used to put an eighth delay on the uh, on the the congas or something to make them sound more. Yeah, yeah, but it gave it that. Yeah, it gave it that groove. It's yeah. I mean, I mean. Shep Pedderbone used to do it all the time and just like you'd have this thing and it just made it more rhythmic. But yeah, um, yeah. so just quickly going back to the beginning, um, I did sort of see a thing about you, your first, was it the first time in the studio was when you won the studio time in the band to actually go into a studio? Was that the first time you'd ever been in a recording studio? Uh, it was, yeah. Okay. And was presumably that was, you weren't even thinking about what it would be like to actually run, like be involved in recording. You just were no, in a band no, and you just, wanted to get it just, down. We won a beat group competition and when we came first with a band called The Remainder. Yeah. And in The Remainder was Rob Davis and Ray Styles. Yeah. And the rest of them were And I used to play all zombie stuff and we used to play all rock, um, Rolling Stones and Beatles stuff. So we were yeah. quite different bands, but we tied, we tied a, a, a one, both won first place. And the, the prize was two hours recording in R.G. Jones Recording Studio in Morden. Okay. And we went in there and, and old man Jones was running the show and all he had was two Ferrograph tape recorders and he used to bounce from one to the other to, to do an overdub. Mm. So you recorded the basic band playing onto two tracks and then played that back and played along with it and recorded it to another machine to, that was an overdub, you know. That's how it went. And we were there for about four hours in the end and we didn't get charged for it. And I've still got the recording. It's, it actually sounds good. Amazing. Not in, technically good. Not not bad. Yeah. But um. The playing on it is, considering we were only kids, it was really, really good. And the next time you were in a studio, would that be when you get into the next band that you're in, which was actually the band you ended up signing to Polydor with? No, not at all. I was a television service engineer, and I became one of the first colour TV engineers in the country and used to go around people's houses. Okay, put the kettle on, let's see what's wrong, you know. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and because they were so big, you couldn't take them out. You had to fix them in situ. Yeah, and I, I got my city and guild in uh, colour TV service, and I, I was one of the top men in the country on fixing televisions. Okay, and the, the, the trade started to go downhill a bit. I was still playing in my band at weekends and whatever else, you know. And um, and then I got this job working for the co-op eventually in in Tooting, the Royal Arsenal Co-op, RACS, it was called. Mm-hmm. And I had no work. I used to fix all my tellies properly, and my patch cleaned up quite quickly. And and many days I go in, there was no work. Mm. And I didn't know what to do. And I was bored. We used, used to go and spend money. And that was, I was earning good money. I had a free car, free petrol, as much as I wanted. And, I th- and after all, I said, I've got to do something with this free time. What do I really want to do? I'd love to be involved in playing sessions and stuff, you know, mm. or in, in studios. And I went around all the studios in London, South London at least, and uh, they all said, I was, I was getting on a bit then. I was in my late 20s. And they all said, no, we can't do anything with you, mate. You're, we're too old and... Uh, no, we got no vacancies. And I said, I'll just sit in. I don't need pain. No, no, people don't like that. I don't want people sitting around watching, which is true, isn't it? People don't. So, no. And in the end, I went to the studio in Tootin. Um, 
Tootie Music Centre, it was called TMC. And there was this old guy, Bernie, running it, but he wasn't really running it. He was just there. It was his, but other people were sort of doing the work. And I said, you know, do you want any work? And he, well, no, he said, um, and we got talking about televisions, and he said, you don't get any portable colour televisions, do you? Now, back then, portable colour television was unheard of, mm. but I had this German one I picked up from a customer who didn't want it. I said, well, I do have them up on here. So we did a deal, and he, he paid me 50 quid and gave me two hours recording time. And that was it. I went went in the studio with my wife and we, we got some other session musicians. I didn't want to use my band for diplomatic reasons, to be honest. Um, so we went in and we did this uh, recording of Rescue Me. I noticed several things weren't working properly. The speakers were out of phase, the monitors were out of phase, were starting, things were crackling. So I fixed a few things while I was there. In the end, um, he said, well, come back in a month. I said, have you got any work? He said, no, come back in a month. I'm, I'm moving the studio. Maybe you can do some wiring for me. My man's gone, my wiring man, my maintenance engineer, he's gone to um, to Canada or somewhere. So I went back about a month to the day, and he said, no, I'm still not doing anything. But um, anyway, that's how I got involved. And I, was, I just used to hang around there. And then I started fixing things and not getting paid for it. Just And then I started mucking about with the engineer there, Ricky, and we started doing a few little recordings together and in downtime and everything. And I just, then it got flooded badly in a, a heavy downpour. It was in the basement of the shop and the, the water gushed up from the floor because there was a drain in the middle of the floor of the studio and it just came up like a fountain. Mm. Everything, luckily the control room was on the ground floor and that didn't get so badly affected. But all the amps and everything, everything in the studio got a wash completely. So we then had to rebuild the studio in the other shop, which had a double-decker shop. It was two-storey. And we built it upstairs in there, rebuilt it, and got some new gear. And I used to drive around everywhere picking all the stuff up because I was getting free petrol for my company. So I, I bought an Allen. I went and picked up a new Allen and Heath desk and various other bits and pieces, and we, we, we built the studio, and that's it. And it was only eight-track to start with. And it sounds like, again, very similar to a lot of the people I've spoken to on here, and very much my uh, my my education as well is that it sounds like you learn how to run a studio by just running, like playing with stuff, making yeah, mistakes. Well, I, I learned how to wire up for a start. And yeah. I had to, yeah, to make to it. me to me after working on televisions, it's a piece of cake. There's nothing yeah. to it. It's just yeah. audio. You know, when you're yeah. on televisions, you've got intermediate frequencies, high frequencies, <laughs> extra high tension. Well, you've got millions of things, um, sine wave oscillators, sawtooth saw, saw oscillators. You've got just everything in, in a colour TV you can think of. And all yeah. I've got here is just audio. It's easy. You know, piece of cake, that. Just r- running wires and microphones and things, and that's it, because it's all repetitive on the board, isn't it? Everything just goes one, two, three, four, it's all the same. Yeah. And that, that was it. And then we... We started getting some recording in downtime eventually. It was a, it was a long story, the, the TMC thing. It started off with an eight track and then they came and repossessed the eight track because he hadn't paid the bill. And then the police came and we got it back again, but they cut all my wires so I had to rewire it up oh again. And then the head went on the eight track. So we got a 16 track sound techniques one from Olympic Studios along with a mixer. Both were the worst bits of kit you could ever work with. I mean, they were really horrible. The, the 16 track, the tape used to wander all over the place, you know. And um, he used to sit there with an Allen key <laughs> controlling the spindle. So if your tape went up, you would turn it that way. <laughs> oh my God. Nightmare. And the desk that looked like it had four band EQ, actually only had two band EQ. Um, right. The other buttons were shelf and stuff, you know. But, and it was really difficult to get a good sound out. But we did. Um, and we did a lot of reggae music in there. Mm-hmm. We were doing demos for the Glitter Band and Mud and stuff. And we started doing our own recordings eventually after we split from Limmy. 
but it's a long story to count it all in a few minutes is uh, to recount. No, but I think it. it's I think it's fascinating, and I think also it's fascinating about um, the fact that you're learning sometimes limitations are good i mean and you know yes, when you've they, only they got, push you to do stuff yeah yeah, I, yeah. i've often found that i mean i I'm, i mean i'm from you know when, when i started it was it still was tape machines it was a bit more than that but i i still think having limitations of, of yeah you have to make a decision and you have to make a a lot of the issues sometimes these days is they're so limitless you, you can yeah, do tra- as many tracks as you want of as much stuff as you want you know whereas actually got, if you've I've only got one track people. These young people talk to me on Facebook or I see messages, you know, you have these lovely big consoles. Oh, what's it like to run? I said, well, it's horrible <laughs> compared to working on a door. You've got so many limitations. And I actually wrote this on a post the other day. I said, they're just great room heaters, room heaters with t- tons of limitations, distortion, crackles, and you name it, you know, and yeah. with a, a door, you don't get that, funny enough. Yeah. And you can have as many tracks as you want. And yeah. you can automate as many tracks and you can automate everything. And it's just... Why would I want to go back to that? No, no, I don't think you'd ever want to go back to a desk. I have bad dreams about it, Steve. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I don't think you would ever want to do that. But I definitely do think there's that thing where it did make you make a decision on what snare you wanted to use rather than put in did, 12. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's <laughs> so, true. So that, that, that was good. So um, I remember a whole day with Matt Atkin listening to snares for a song with Hazel Dean. A whole mean, day we spent, we had a hundred snare drums in this machine and we went through, we went, try that one, that one, that one. A hundred snare drums. Yeah, oh man. And I probably ended up going back to using the Lin oh, anyway, I right? Now, by the end of the day, I was fed up with doing snare drums. I had the same thing with like kicks. There's a lot of things where people just go, "Oh, you know, I'm going to spend like," and it's just like, no, just like if you can't find it in the first eight, then just go back. I, mean, I once said to Mike and Matt, like, they're getting all finicky with these kick drums. I said, "Look, it's only a bit of click and a bit of bump, you know." <laughs> <laughs> they hated me for that. They thought I was mad. And years later, they said to me. I know what you mean now. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's exactly that. So that just to 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 move you on a bit from from TMC was uh, TMC that was that where the Nick Straker stuff was done or was that in a different studio? Oh, uh, Nick was my keyboard player in my band. Because I I that's that's certainly when I saw that name come up, I had a huge flashback of when I was a kid and the whole kind of first time I heard "Walk in the Park" and it's such a yeah. great great track. Yeah, well we 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 made these demos in downtime, um, and. We had this walk in the park record, which we got a slow intro on, mm. a little piano-y, flowery kind of introduction. And one of the guys who was there used to be hanging out there, uh, Roy Trout, his name was, apparently he died recently. He was trying to go talk like that, and he went, arm, arm, arm. <laughs> he had a really one funny voice. But he took his tracks around to the record company, and, and he took Nick's as well. He said, I'll take yours. So he took a walk in the park into Pinnacle, I think it was. Yeah, it was Pinnacle. And this guy called Jeremy says, oh, it's great, but it needs a disco beginning. I'll come down, I'll produce it for you. Oh, no. no. Complete nightmare. And the disco beginning worked out all right. The dunk, dunk, dunk. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But but he was an absolute nightmare to work with. He was a madman. The only person I've ever walked out the studio was with him. Oh, really? Because he drove me completely mad. Yeah. He was a nice fellow, actually, yeah. but he just drove you mad in the studio. You know, no, Jeremy, no. And he had the same, that one sounds better than that one. No, no, it doesn't. It's exactly the same. Yeah. Um, he, he just had these weird ideas. But anyway, the record was finished and um, and it was a hit. But in the meantime, I was working with Tony Mansfield, who used to be our roadie, mm. and he was writing songs. And, and he wrote a couple of songs, which again got a deal with GTO. Uh, but they, they never got used those songs, and and we sat down and wrote some new. He wrote some new stuff. Me, just me and him, really. Mm. Um, the first one that released was Straight Lines. I don't know if you remember that one. 
New Music. Yeah, yes, I do know that one. That was, yeah. It was, that was the first single. And then there was Living By Numbers, which... Um, no, yeah, definitely know that one. And we, even today, the, the, the album got a lot of acclaim because we were really pushing the boundaries back then. You know, we were doing things nobody else was doing. If you listen to the records, you think, how'd they do that? You know, because people still today don't know how we did things. And that, um, was, that was really part of that whole kind of new... I mean, it was very different sounding. It was very part of that new wave scene, you know, that Newman and people like that were part yeah, of as well. Yeah. And it was it, it was the beginnings of hearing those those sounds on records that... I think I was the first person to create um, a sequence drum part. Really? Because there, there weren't sequences in those days. Yeah. All we had was um, one of those Roland TR-808. Is it not TR-808? Um, the drum uh, rhythm machine, rhythm box. That's all it was. It was a oh, yeah, box. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm curious. So we had... Uh, we had a Simmons kit mm. as well that the drummer used to play. Mm. And I, I thought, how does this work then? So <laughs> I took the head off the Simmons drum, and all it is is a loudspeaker connected to this sort of plastic glass plate. Yeah. When you hit it with a stick, it creates a pulse. Yeah. And the pulse is sent down the wire, just like a microphone, basically, because the loudspeaker acts like a microphone in reverse. Yeah. And it, it hit the, the unit and created a, a sound. Mm. So I said to Tony, look, we can feed some other sounds into that. So I got this basic part from the uh, the rhythm machine and i gated out filtered and gated out the bass drum and the snare drum separately through two separate gates and um and i fed them to the the simmons and i i discovered that you have to be very finicky with the the release times and everything because if you made it too long it went <laughs> instead mm. of, yeah anyway we got it just right and we used that on several tracks um Again, that the old uh, TV engineer brain comes yeah, in handy, doesn't it? Yeah, it was working, yeah. And we yeah. also used, we used to, we, nev- we never had a click track or a metron, so we used to use a synth. And okay. uh, we set it onto a sawtooth waveform with white noise. And mm. Yeah. Drum used to play to that. And if you fell behind or, or went ahead, we'd just stop and roll back a bit and drop in. Love it. Well, those tricks, yeah. Well, but that, but that, yeah, but that explains, as you say, why people will listen to those records now and just go, "How did you know they do?" I mean, and and at the time, it's really hard to explain this to people. But at the time, I mean, I remember hearing some of those, some of those new wave records, um, and certainly late seventies, early eighties. You know, first time I heard Kids in America, first time I heard the Human League, yeah. the, like the the early early Human League, and my mind was just blown. I was like, "How are they doing this? I don't yeah. understand." Yeah. We had one trick that we used. Tony and I devised this. uh, We wanted a sequence, but we didn't know how to make a sequence. We wanted a weird sounding sequence. So we played the track. Tony went on the piano and and was playing drum sticks onto the, you know, the little strings at the end of the piano, not the big ones, the little ones. Yeah. The other side of the the bridge, where we call it. And he kept playing all these different rhythms along to the track and I'm recording it and everything. And then when we finished, we listened to it and we played it back and we chose the best one bar little sequence. Mm. I think it might have been two bars, I don't know. And then we just proceeded to fly it in throughout the song. Oh. And do you know about flying in? Yeah, I do. I was just thinking about the painful process of how long that would take. It took a long time. But we, yes. we flew it in because I got quite adept at doing the, my timing was pretty good. Four, three, two, one, to, bang, yeah. I used to line up, put a little China graph mark on the tape and line up to the spot. And if it was ahead, I'd move the China graph a little bit. And eventually I'd go dump a more, it was more or less in, most times, but um, a, a lot of flying in went on, loads mm. of flying in and stuff, because we didn't have the tracks in those days to record stuff. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's amazing. And and the flying in thing, just for, for anyone that doesn't know, it's, it's sort of the the equivalent of now, basically, you know, a sample really, or, or it just is, a, yeah. block of, a block of audio. But then yeah. if you wanted to repeat something, that's the only really Well, only it's a lot easier doing. to, uh, even Stock Aiken Waterman used to record the backing vocals on a slave. Yeah. Um, 
and then they they mixed the block down into the Publison. Yeah. And then the Publison had 20 seconds, wow, of stereo recording in it. Yeah. And then it was just a case of putting the MIDI note at the right place to yeah. trigger the audio. And then every time you got a chorus, you got the backing vocals come along. That's that was it. how we did it. You know? Yeah, exactly. Which is why there were very rarely any key changes outside of the ones from the verse into the chorus. Exactly. Yeah. That's <laughs> a good plan. <laughs> I like it. Key changes um, are hard work. <laughs> key changes are hard work. So, right. You've just done a million harmonies. Now do them all yeah. again. I mean, it's, it's people like Tracy Ackerman, who I'm sure wouldn't have a problem with doing that. But um, talking about Waterman, the interesting thing is obviously you met Waterman in what I call Waterman you know point zero point one so you met pete in sort of late 70s before he even became the pete waterman when yeah, he was yeah. you know the the bits the bits that people don't know really when he's just like a music guy who just loves music loves soul music loves reggae yeah. um he's not the guy that people know he's just a, a you know a oh, he, really... he just came to this well what happened was um he was had a partnership uh loose ends productions with um peter collins yeah Peter Collins um, shared an office with a guy called Paul Linton. Mm-hmm. Paul Linton was Nick Straker's publisher. Mm-hmm. And they kept hearing all these records. One day I had, I had, I think I heard 12 of my records in an hour on, on Radio 1. I was in the bath. Um, wow. It was, it, was, it was amazing. All these different records coming on. They're all coming out tooting. Anyway, this, this provoked um, Peter Collins saying, what's all these records I keep hearing? And, and, and Paul Linton says, well, that's Pete and Hammond and he's locked down in Tootin. He says, can you introduce me? So he did. And Peter Collins came down and he didn't like the studio. It was horrible. He liked the posh stuff. Um, and it was a bit scummy. Mm. Um, anyhow, he, um, he said, can you mix a record for me? So I said, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. So we did this Fear of Flying, it was called, and we, I mixed it for him. And he was very happy. And we got on really well as, a, as mates and everything. And then Waterman phoned up and said, I want you to do this mod band um, called the Lambrettas. And Pete said to me, I'll never forget his word. He said, Pete, you're going to have to help me out here, mate. He said, oh, I haven't got a clue about mod band because he was producing them, um, uh, what they call that, the Hillbilly band, the um, Rockabillies, um, what they call it on Magnet. So, Stray Cats. No, no. no um, oh, it'll come to me in a minute. Okay. But anyway, so he never recorded anything pop or anything. It was all just this. Rockabilly stuff. I can't remember the name. Anyway, okay. so we booked some sessions and we we got on with it. And um, we've got a brass. He didn't know what to do, so he put a brass arrangement on it. And we didn't have a, a tremolo guitar to do it. Well, on the Poison Ivy record, so I made. Um, I used the. Um, it was a flanger come doubler voltage. Um, not voltage doubler. Um, automatic ADT thing. You know. Yeah. And it had modulation, so I said, look, let's put the guitar through there and set the modulation going, wow, 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 and we did that. And that's mm. how that worked out, which made a quite different sound. Then you faded it down because mm. it, it didn't fade down, it just went on and on. And that, that, if you listen to the record, you can hear that's quite clearly what it is, but no one had ever done that before, I don't think. No. So, you know, we got on quite well, and then we finished the album, and then um, Peter Waterman said, you've got another album to do now with the Piranhas, another band from Brighton. And and that's when Waterman came down. I felt my first actual meeting with people that was it and then then they offered me a 10 percent share in loose ends productions which i never actually saw mm. but i was promised it but then peter collins kept ringing the studio uh, ringing me and saying look i don't like working there he says there's no assistant only only bernie's son who was useless and he says it's, it's dirty and can you come and work with me somewhere else I said, well, i'm in the middle of something i can't really and then he kept ringing bernie and asking if i could go and work with him in some other studios bernie wouldn't give him my number that was the beginning i remember that Anyhow, in the end, 
I took some time out and I went to work in Trident with Pete for a few days and we did the Bell Styles in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and the one, the best record that came out was, uh, out of that batch was the uh, Sign of the Times. Bell Styles. Sign of the Times. Yeah. Time. yeah, yeah, amazing song, yeah. And, great, great record. And I, I ended up, I've only just got my PPL on that because I played the bass on that. Okay. Because the girl, she couldn't do it. She came up with this sort of bass line and she's just fumbling around and messing up. And Pete Collins is, is very short, to, wants to move on quickly, you know. Yeah. And, of course, we were wasting time trying to get this bass line. And I said to her, look, try doing it like this. I'm trying to help, you know. Mm. And in the end, she still couldn't do it. She said, oh, if you're so good, you do it then. I looked at Pete and I said, I shrugged my shoulders. And he said, do it, let's get on, you know. So that's how I ended up playing the bass on the record. And I did a few other things with Pete. But in the end, he went off with Julian Mendelssohn because I was quite busy with the new music things and that. Then yeah. we got back together again, started doing other stuff. I can't remember now. Well, it's got, it's that point, because I've got you sort of down to your next kind of main studio as the workhouse. Is yeah. That right, which is obviously. I did quite a lot before then. I, I worked quite a bit down at Ridge Farm. Oh, Ridge Farm. Oh, yeah. Lovely. Um, did quite a few things down there, Kissing the Pink, and uh, lots of stuff you probably wouldn't know I'd done. But yeah, work has obviously they've got you know number number one well three massive number ones that came from that building both you know the musical youth song, the Paul Young song and um, and and the mighty Tapao who I not uh, a lot of people know that. Well, they Tapao is um, the wonderful Carol is part of a, the, the show that I spoke about earlier the eighty classical show and she does yeah. China with with us and the symphony orchestra so. Uh, but yeah, I know those three records came out of that building, which is pretty impressive. I was only talking to someone about that last night because. Uh, I met this guy in the pub last night. His name's Ray. Mm. And we've known each other a long time. Neither of us knew what we did. And we got mm. talking. And he, he drives all the stars are out for BBC and that, mm. including Paul Young. Mm. And I said, well, I haven't seen Paul for years. Tell him, say hello to him. I said, I said about how he was in my studio mm. recording his album. And, and I was in Manfred's studio next door mm. recording Rolling Rat. <laughs> well, you, you see, I didn't know if you were going to bring the rat into the equation, but... Uh... I think you not only did you didn't only do the rat. I think you did the gerbil as well, didn't you? I did a whole album. <laughs> do you know what though? The funny thing you say about that, I do the actually. Re- Bucket song. Yeah, but I do remember when when rat rapping came out, and actually, regardless of all the kind of novelty of it, the track behind it was actually very cool. Oh no, this was the whole plot. Roland wanted, or Roland David. Roland. <laughs> no, <laughs> stick with Roland. It's great. But he he wanted. Roland was a glove puppet, but everything around him had to be real. Yeah. If you watch the show, they had real cameras and real cars and real everything. Yeah. It wasn't puppet style. Yeah. And we that that track was actually put together not by me, it's by Jaffa, my mate Jaffa. Mm. Um and he well, he just asked me to mix it for him to make it sound cool. Yeah. Because he couldn't he's not really a good mixing person. He's a great keyboard player. Yeah. Um he's in Latin Quarter. Do you remember Latin Quarter? I remember Latin Quarter, yeah. Yeah, well I did their album for him and mm. we became friends from that and that's how he got me to do this uh rolling rat rat rapping record. And then after that, we, we did uh, Love Me Tender, which got to the charts. Mm. And we did a really cool sort of backing track on it, me and Roddy Matthews, the guitarist. And um, and then we did the whole album after that, including the Pink Bucket song <laughs> with, <laughs> with Kevin the Gerbil. I mean, it's, you know, it's weird, but there was a time there where, you know, that is that was a, one of the biggest celebrities you could find on television. Yeah, a bit of trivia there about the Paul Young album. I was looking for work and I went into CBS and I saw Ruff Wimwood and he, he said, how would you feel about recording a, a solo artist? And I, I kind of declined it because I'd rather do a band than a 
just a singer. Mm. Anyway, my my engineer at the studio, um, who was working there when I bought the studio, Laurie Latham, I had to sack him. I said, Laurie, I can't pay you and pay me and pay everybody else. And Jane, the, the assistant, the uh, the secretary, we haven't got enough money. I said, go and get yourself some jobs. Bring them in. I'll pay you engineering fees as well as you get your fee. Yeah. And he went into Muff Wimbledon and he took the job. <laughs> He took the very job that I would have taken if wow. I had the guts. Yeah. And, wow. of course, you know, the rest is history. And he got all these – because he knew a whole lot of musicians from working with um, – hit me with your rhythm stick. And Ian Jerry. Ian Jerry. And so he got on these girls and, and um, Pino Palladino on the bass and that, which made it quite characteristic, that sound, that he, yeah. the threat sound. Um, and, of course, the rest is history on that one. Yeah, that whole we had some fun. I was I was always in and out of the studio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The whole the whole album was incredible. And are you at this stage? I mean, obviously, before you rejoin Pete, um, are you getting approached to do? Obviously, you're mixing records. Are you getting approached to remix records at this stage as well? Yeah, I was doing a lot for Magnet back yeah. then. You know, Safta, Safta Jaffrey was the uh, the A and R man there, and he spotted me in Tootin. Because mm. he used to be mates with some of the people who used to hang out there, mm. and he got me my first remix, which was a, a song for Blue Zoo called "I'm Your Man." Yeah, I remember that band, great band. Yeah, and and a few things after that, but he used to give me productions to do, and it wasn't so much remix; it was more productions back then. Mm. And I did quite a lot with Anne Dudley as well. Um, oh, okay. Because Anne, we did the, the Techno Twins. Yes, did quite a few. I'm trying to remember all the things we did together, but we worked up in air a lot. And this would have been. Is this, this pre pre this pre art of noise, or is this around? Pre art of noise, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anne's lovely, and um, we we all got pissed one night. My wife and I and her and Roger, and we said we're going to make it. You know, <laughs> we were drunk <laughs> as anything, walking along the Thames, and um, we weren't famous then. Anyway. Well, I'm not famous now, anyway, really, not in the public eye. But she's she's won a Grammy, an Oscar, rather, didn't she? Oh yeah, yeah. Her scoring is. Uh, and yeah. she's she's lovely. I don't see her anymore, but but um, I did all that before, and it was only. What made me go to the workhouse was that the uh, I wanted to start a studio, my own studio, mm. and I, locking up one night, I found this book, and it in the back of the music wasn't me music because another magazine we used to use, can't remember, and it said finance available for studio development, and I thought, well, I'll have some of that. I said to Bernie, I said, let's build another studio downstairs, and we'll have two studios then because we're very busy, and he said, oh no, can't can't do that, Peter, can't have a partner, mm. and he was paying me four pounds an hour, you know. Mm. Um, so that was that scuppered that. So then I phoned up this guy who was offering this finance, and he happened to be Manfred Mann's accountant. Mm. And he said, "Well, hold on, I might have a ready-made situation for you." I explained my situation and everything, and he put me into man- contact with Manfred, and he said, "Don't tell anybody because uh, the, the, the partners Manfred wants to buy them out, but he wants to make it if they know someone's in the, the wings waiting to buy, they'll up the price." Mm. So Manfred bought out uh, Underhill, I think they were called something like that. And they were, the place was just losing money hand over fist. They're all sitting at home and drinking, eating, taking drugs and everything. And so I bought it. I ended up paying £5,000 for my share, but another £10,000 had to be paid out of profit. So I paid £15,000 in total for my share of the studio. Mm. And we sold it for a quarter of a million. Um, Not bad. Five years later, you know. <laughs> Not bad. So, Not bad. Turned it right around, yeah. Yeah, not bad going. So what? Of course, it burned down after that. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. So studios do tend to burn down, don't they? That's a bit, yeah. of, a, bit of a story that comes up yeah. a few times. Yeah, and that's how that's how I got the, the workhouse, and from there on, 
um, Waterman quite frequently used to ring me up and say, can you come do some mixing? Because they had no one. Phil had more or less refused, refused to mix anymore for them because he said it's too difficult and he, he needs royalties on it. He's not going to do it anymore. Mm. So they kept ringing me and I said, I can't. I was really busy. Then I went quiet um, and my manager didn't want me to. Uh, Safta Jaffrey from Magnet Records was now my manager. Mm. Dodgy Productions, he called himself. And he didn't want me to contact Waterman because he knew Waterman had dragged me off and that. Anyway, in the end, I had nothing, no work. I wanted to work. And I said, I'm going to ring him. So I phoned Pete Waterman. He says, oh, yeah, get down here quick and mix yourself a hit, which happens to be the which title of my It's the title of the book, yeah. The book, yeah. <laughs> um, and that's what I did. I went down and started doing bits and pieces, initially being managed by, by Dodgy Productions and working for an hourly rate. And the first one was? Uh, I did uh, Phil Fearon. Um, Georgie Fame, quite a few bits and pieces. And what's, um, I mean, I've been fortunate enough in my in my job as um, Kylie's MD to get uh, some of those multi tracks and sort of listen to them and go through them and just to sort of see what's behind them. And um, the one thing that I certainly found out is that, uh, firstly, there's loads of stuff in mono, which I know you have a theory about, which I think is a true one. Which is, you know, a lot of times it needs it's fine being in mono because just stereo spread is not important. But no. secondly, there's quite a lot of stuff that isn't on them that obviously was running live. Yeah. So that was always an interesting thing. I used um, to run stuff live when I was mixing it. I mean, on Better the Devil. Yeah. I don't know if I put them to tape or not. I don't think I did because we never used to have a tape to put them on. No. <laughs> well, that was it. And also, some of the tape didn't hang around because someone else was coming in yeah. to use it. So but uh, on Better the Devil, that 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 mix had been rejected by by um, Kylie and uh, what's his name, the manager at the time, Terry. 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 Um, and I don't, they hadn't given it to me to mix, and I don't know why they hadn't given it to me to mix. Mm. And eventually Pete Waterman said, look, go in there and sort this record out for me, get it working right. So I went in, and my first thing to do was always check the drums because Mike and Matt are not technical, mm. and their drums were always about 10 milliseconds to 15 milliseconds late, the bass drum and snare drum I'm talking about. Okay. Because they make samples. They, they use the original Lind drum to start with. Yeah. And then they'd, they'd sample a kick or a snare into the AMS. You know the AMS yes. delay line, and you could lock it in with the lock button. Yeah. They wouldn't probably edit it up dead tight, and then they'd send the, the, the drum on tape to trigger the one in the AMS, which had a few seconds delay, or a few milliseconds, or depending how tightly they'd edit it, always one millisecond and sometimes yeah. more. And then they'd get fed up with that drum tone because they couldn't make it sound good, so they'd do the whole thing again, triggering from the new drum, which was already late, yeah. and so on, you get this compound lateness. Anyway, so the first thing I did was to correct that by um, I used to copy the, the, the drum part, the snare and bass drum parts onto a, a two-track machine. Oh, sorry, onto an, a slave machine. Um, and then I used to sample some new drums into the samplers and then offset the slave machine so it was running fast. And I used to then compare the hi-hat to the new bass drum using a two-track machine, hi-hat one side and bass drum the other. And I'd go out there, and if, the hair, if the bass drum was a bit late compared to the hi-hat, I'd offset a bit more one way or the other until I had the bass drum and the hi-hat, because the hi-hat was always from the gin drum, so it was always going to be in time. Yeah. And all the instrumentation, all the instrumentation, that was all the instrumental stuff, that was all from the lin. Yeah. So that was all in time, just the kick and the snare. So once I got those right and changed the sounds, I used to change the sounds. I didn't like what they used after the time. And um, once that was sitting right, it was great. But then there was no interest in the record, no, no quirkiness in it at all. So that's when I got the backing vocals and started fiddling about 
doing all that. Oh, 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 yeah. oh. That was all me. Nobody else. Nobody knows, nobody knows I did that because people <laughs> thought Mike and Matt did it. Matt thought Mike did it. But it was all my work. I spent ages doing that. And I never got a credit for it. And not, I just got mixed by, you know. But it's a massive, it's a really big hook, though, I think that. I, I mean, know, that's, that's a thing. And also the, the, the verse where she goes, I'll take you back. Yeah. I'll take you back. That wasn't there. I, I sampled bits of the first verse and used bits and pieces to make a, a third verse. Yeah. Because there was no third verse. The same with Ricasti's I'm never going to give you up. There's no third verse. There's just two verses and a, bit, a blank bit. So um, the third verse, I guess, was that, that that was down to you to make the third verse the sort of yeah. a cappella with the drums. Yeah. 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 Well, that was, that was, that was cut from my, um, my extended version because they didn't like what I did with it. They put tons of stuff on tape and I didn't use any of it. Well, <laughs> not, not much of it. I, I liked the bass and, and I redid the drums with some different drum sounds. And then I mixed it the way I saw it. And it was all done in one night, the mix. And mm. I made an extended version and, and I got the word, they don't like it. Um, they've got to do it again. So anyway, before I could do that, um, Tilly Rutherford sent a tape out to Capital Radio and it was on there and they started playing it mm. and they, they made a loop out of it to, to run for more than 30 seconds. It was just a sampler, you know, mm. and everyone was going mad for this record. So uh, they, they had to quickly cut up my extended version to make a, a radio edit because I didn't do a radio edit. I just made this extended version, which is what we did most of the time. And that was it. That was the definitive version. It's still never been changed from the original mix. And there's and lots it, of edits in the intro was quite different than yeah. the original. But it's interesting as well. I think there's a lot of things coming out about that song, especially this year. I've heard Rick talk about it and I've heard a few people talk about it. And um, obviously the fact that it was, it had been going off, it had been hanging around for quite some time before you got it. It had changed a few times and yeah, you know, there was so, a point yeah. where, you know, it didn't even, you know, it was only Ian, that, Ian Kerno that put the strings and the brass on it. But actually you were kind of, by the time you got to it, it, it you did it and it was, that's it. And then it's one of the, yeah. I think it's, yeah. was it got a billion streams on YouTube now? Apparently. Yeah, right. Crikey. And, that's um, amazing. So it still sounds good today. Yeah. Another and, record that still, even Pete Waterman said, this is another one that still sounds good today is Pepsi and Shirley's Heartache. Yeah. Great song. Um, and that was the first job I did proper job, a remix job I did at PWL. Yeah. Um, and that was a right mess when I got it. It sounded awful and the drums were dreadful on it. And I, I had this idea to take it and sort of bit, bit Americanized. So I, I, I'd been working on something. We were getting a snare drum for a, a record and we wanted the one that is only human. I'm only human. Yeah. Humanly. Human yeah. Humanly. And I'd, I'd made this drum sound and I thought it's not a normal snare sound at all. If you listen to it, it's, it's actually more of a rim shot sound with loads of echo on it mm. um, as a reverb. Anyway, I'd use these drum sounds on it, and it was it had the Billy Jean kind of feel to the bottom end of it. So um, I changed the bass drum, did the snare drum on it, and and then I got the girls back in to sing a couple of bits because they weren't I didn't think they were quite right. So uh, that was it. And then then when it came out, I didn't even get a credit on it. That's weird. But you got I think you got a tw- there's a remix or twelve inch with your name on it, isn't it? On that, I'm sure I've got one. Maybe there might be because yeah. I kicked up a stink about it. I said, "Look, I've even got credit on it." <laughs> uh, I got told that on the next rerun, there'll be my name will be put on it, but I never saw it on there. And and I assure you, nobody came near nearer by the studio while I was doing it. Right? None they were all too busy doing stuff, you know. And obviously coming from a, initially from like a guitar and then a bass background, um, you're now getting involved into in you know, programming and sorting drum sounds. Um, keyboard wise, what are you doing that stuff as well on your yeah. remixes? Yeah. I do everything. 
Yeah, yeah. So I mean, that's I what I mean. So, you, so, but so what I'm saying is that you weren't you were taught how to play guitar, but then at some point you obviously picked up keys as well. Well, I had to because so much of the program is done through the keyboard, isn't it? I, I yeah. learned all my chords on the keyboard, on the piano, and that. And mm. um, I, I wouldn't call myself a keyboard player. Um, yeah. I'm not fluent, but I can make it do whatever I want it to do. Mm. Um, I know all my chords and know the inversions and everything, and um, augmenteds and major sevenths and minor sevenths and all of them, you know. So, yeah. And I guess then, you know, you really are in, because we're still in an early world of digital keyboards. So, I mean, I imagine that you're, you're using maybe possibly two or three, I mean, obviously DX7, that point is going to be a big one, but maybe just two or three keyboards max, right, in those, in those days? To me, I, on things that I did, I didn't use those at all. My command had every, every, they had every keyboard known to man. I used a DX7, and at PWL, I had a, I forget what it's called now, it was a Yamaha box it was um like like, like 10 dx7s i think it was called in, okay. in one box I yeah what it was called now yeah lm something i can't remember but i used to use um i had a little d110 they used to call me one man and his 110 <laughs> a roland d110 which is a multi-timbral synth in a box yeah a 19 inch rack mount thing and i used that mostly i think and um, for drum and f- so and for drum sounds because obviously a lot of you still to this day you know your a lot of your programming is it's it's very obviously you I mean there's so many times that I'll listen to something and go okay that's a Pete Hammer mix a lot of it is to do with the percussion and the, as we we're talking about earlier to do with the percussive you know the stereo delay percussion and stuff like that and again presumably that is that drum boxes at the time or is that are you creating are they samples yeah I, I, they're all samples that I, I use because you're not, we're on um, I work on Cubase. I don't know what you use, but um, I do. You know what? I started on Cubase at that at the time, bit late, obviously a bit later. But yeah, Cubase was my main thing all the way through, and then I I jumped over to Logic uh, eventually. But I did start on Cubase. But if you've got a, an audio sample on a track, and another audio sample comes along close to it, it'll cut off the first one, doesn't it? Yeah. So with with bass on, especially if you're doing high energy, you like that. You know, instead of so I spread the bass drum over four or five tracks, depending on how many I need. So that they're all, they've all got their own track. Each okay. beat has got its own track. So you never get this cutting off of the sample effect. That, uh, so it's rather like you were using a, a drum machine, in fact, but you're not. Yeah. Um, same with the snare. Um, if, they're, if they're going to overlap, I just put them on a separate track, if the beats are going to overlap. Because yeah. bass drums can be quite long these days, can't they? So, well, yeah, they can be, and sometimes they can have yeah. lots of information that they don't need, like a whole, yeah. like a load of like a low end tone, which is yeah, exactly, yeah, not not that necessary. Uh, yeah, but all, all the programming I do on screen, um, okay, every beat, every every hi hat, right, on as a sample on screen. Yeah, and of course, you're a huge fan of Tom's. Tom, you love a Tom Phil. Oh, Tom Phil, and uh, not. <sighs> It's, you know, well, you did. Them. You people did. Ask for them. You yeah, know? but they're so like. I mean, look. I mean, I'll bring. I, I let me bring a, an example in the equation, and this is either going to be one that you're going to immediately remember, or you're going to go, oh, maybe not. But for me, one of the best things you ever did, and it still to this day sounds incredible, is you did a remix of uh, a song called "Symptoms of True Love" by Tracy oh, Spencer. Oh yeah, Tracy Spencer. Yeah, that was extraordinary. Yeah. It's one of the best. I mean, still, it's one of my favourite remixes of anything wow. anyone's ever done. And when you listen to the original, it is chalk and cheese what you did yeah, to it. Yeah, 
Oh, thanks, mate. <laughs> were you influenced by any other remixes of the time when you were doing those things? You know, were you listening to people like, you know, Shep or anyone like that? Are we I just don't like, listen to anybody, to be honest. So we're like, here's a song. This is how all I, I hear it. is all I hear is what is on. Uh, if I happen to be near a radio, or if I'm doing a project, and somebody says, "Oh, listen to this," or "Listen to that," or I don't listen to. to obviously, you can't avoid it. It's hearing music. Yeah. If I hear something I like, I'll check it out. But I don't go. When you've been around as long as I've been around, Steve, you don't want to hear any more music. No, but I just wondered back then when you were doing remixes that were very much going to... I used to be go home and go to sleep. You know, I've been up all night. Yeah, so that's what I mean. So when when you get that song, get a song into remix, or the, your your remit is, okay, this this is in your head. This is how I hear it. I'm going to be absolutely honest. When I start, I don't know what the hell I'm going to do. And that's the truth. I never have a plan. And yeah. people say to me, I used to hate going to meetings and say, well, how do you see it? What do you have? And I really didn't know. I just, it, it, it's evolved with me. You start on it and you do mm. one thing leads to another. And the next, next thing you've got a song. Yeah. Um, or a remix going. But uh, they're never really, sometimes I get the ideas in my bed. Yeah. I'm sleeping and I think, I know what I can do with this. I've often come home from the studio, totally worried about what I'm going to do with the track. And then I go to sleep and I work it all out in my, in my brain and wake up. I know what I'm doing now. And I go to work and sort it out. Now that that I do that that I that I can I do that as well yeah I can I your can, subconscious works away on it yeah it? yeah yeah I I've definitely done that and I've definitely you know I've definitely have situations where you're literally about to nod off and your brain just goes what about that and then you go I get oh, it right, when I'm waking it. up I get it yeah, when I'm yeah. waking up okay interesting not, not so much when I'm nodding off yeah when I'm yeah. nodding off I'm usually off off cut. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but well then you get up and get to... The other thing, obviously, you had this incredible knack of doing was re- re- remixing and refreshing something to actually turn it from a flop into a hit, which you absolutely did with Desireless, which was the Voyage Voyage record. Oh, yeah. That, do you know, then I didn't know what to do with that. And all I really did was change the drums on it and, and make, make it sound better. But that's all. It, that's what it needed, though. Yeah. I didn't go over the top with it because I didn't think... I thought it was nice. I liked it, but they just got it wrong. Yeah, but I mean, that, and, and some of the, I mean, there's just so many millions and millions of things that you did whilst you were there. Um, it's difficult to pinpoint too many. I mean, I would go back to your remix of Shattered Glass by Laura Brannigan, I think was another one oh, of your right, finest. Yeah, yeah. Um, just sounds, you know, just the sound of the thing. Yeah. It always, you know, you have a such an incredible knack of creating, or, you know, with what you were doing then, um, just creating brightness and space. power and, and space power, power is important brightness pays space and power but never ever cheesy and tacky and i thought no, that was, i always that try to achieve power if it's not sounding powerful to me unless it's not meant to be powerful but uh, yeah. you know i think music it, it gives you emotion if it's if it doesn't move me i'm going to do something to it to make it make it better you know yeah and i think what can i do now and I, I, that's how it works with it i can't i can't say anything else than that really it's just I'm glad people spot it. What I'm what I'm doing to them because it, it makes it all worthwhile. Oh no, they really do. And did you have any? Because obviously you've loved music for such a long time, and you've worked worked with music a lot of time. At those times when you're doing this, working on the stocking and water and stuff, uh, did you ever have a moment where you were working on something and you thought, "Wow, actually, this is quite a big deal." If I think about someone like Donna Summer, or was it just every record was a job? Pretty much every record was a job, but there were times when I took the record home and played it all the way home. In, in, the, in the case of Never Gonna Give You Up, I did that. I never forget taking that home and thinking, this is, this is fantastic. This, mm. I knew it was going to be a hit. And it, it happened with a few, I can't remember offhand now, but I didn't often used to take copies home. 
because mm. we never, I never had anything to play them on at home. I could yeah. only take a cassette, a cassette um, you know, a compact cassette. I had no DAT machine at home. Yeah. Um, at that time, anyway, we only just got them in the studio. We used to use F1s before that. I don't, don't you remember the F1s? I do, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we used to record onto those, the masters. We used to edit the masters up on half inch, then copy them to the F1. Mm. And then along came the DAT machine. And uh, But they were very expensive. Um, I didn't really have a use for one, so I didn't buy one at that point. Right. Until I started my own studio at home. And in the in that PWL time, I mean, they obviously, we all know it was a factory. I mean, you... Did you have such a thing as working hours back then? I mean, do you do? Were you clocking in on sort of night shift? Were you there every day? Were you there seven days a week? How did it usually work? Well, in the beginning, Waterman said to me, uh, he took me aside and he said, "Pete, I want you to leave Jeff and come and work with me, join the team." And I said, "Yeah, it sounds good." He says, "The only thing is, you're going to have to work nights, and I hate, hate, hate working nights. I've done so many nights in other studios because of the hours that you have to do to finish the things off, and that you know." And I really didn't want to do late anyway. Then he offered me five hundred quid a mix, and one a day. So I thought, oh, so that's two and a half grand a week. You know, that's that's quite a lot. Back in you're talking about 1980, yeah, 85, 86, a lot of money. So I said, okay. Anyway, it started off. I used to come in at eleven o'clock at night, meet them in the pub. They'd, they'd have a drink. I wouldn't drink because if I I couldn't work if I drank beer no. or anything. Yeah, I didn't smoke. I don't smoke. And um, so they'd be all getting quietly pissed, and they'd tell me what we're going. And then we'd go back to the studio, and then they'd push the phases up. Now, yeah, this is it. A bit of that, a bit of that. Make it work, and that was it. And then they go home in their cars. Um, Pete used to go to his flat. He just lived in a flat nearby. Uh, in the beginning, he, he lived in a, a cupboard under the stairs in the studio with his dog, smelly dog. Um, but that was it. And then as time went on, I realised that I'd get in these mixes pretty much to where they needed to be by about three o'clock in the morning. And then I had nothing to do, which was really boring. Mm. So I started coming in later and later and later. And eventually I used to come in probably three or four in the morning, get it ready for Peter by about eight o'clock. Uh, and then sometimes I'd come back and finish it off the next day. Uh, if in some instances, like Roadblock, I was the whole night putting samples all over that because it was Tilly Rutherford gave me all these um, samples to whack on it. You know the um, James Brown things and yeah. all that. And it, I thought that'd be easy, but it wasn't. Where to put them? Where they worked? They didn't work everywhere. Mm. You just couldn't put them randomly on there. They, I tried so many different configurations and. What it ended up as the, the final record is what I chose, but it wouldn't have worked if I put them any other way. But after, that took a whole night to do. Is there some, is there a kind of a, a sort of gem from those, that PWL, the time you were there that you, so other than never going to give you up, which obviously was the most successful thing. I mean, I heard Rick say the, the other day, he, he still thinks he got the best song they ever wrote. We're yeah. never going to give you up. But I mean, yeah. apart from that, is there something that you would still listen to, go back to now or listen to now from that time and think, cool, I'm really proud of that? Oh, I don't know. I think Respectable was, was, especially for you, I'm really proud of that one. Yeah. Probably more than all the others because that that was crap. It sounded crap. Right. And it was mixed dozens of times. I don't know how many people mixed it and it sounded crap. And when I turned it around the way I did it, um, I'm really proud of what I did there. Although I didn't get the recognition for it, if you heard the original versions, you know what I mean. Um, it, it was the start with the drums were re really slow. They're really behind the beat. 
which made it drag. And they kept, they kept wondering why the track was dragging, but they couldn't hear what it was. Mm. And when I got it, that's the first thing I did. And then I then I made everything sound nice. And then I thought the intro's naff. It just went, Bruh. especially for you. And I thought, I don't know, I really like these BV's mics down on the bridge. Wow. Ooh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I lifted them off and put them at the start of the song. And with a bit of skullduggery, they, that became the intro. And, and Waterman came in and I, I, he said, go on then, play it to me. So I played it. He says, it's Disneyland. And, and he just stomped off out and said, that's it. It's a smash. And actually, that's so weird because I can't, um, I can't even imagine the song without that intro. And that intro is now just iconic. Yeah, I know. And I, I, I pick up on things. I always look in throughout the song when I make remixes or something, I look for bits that are interesting. And I, I think, where can I use that again or something else? Or use it as a hook somewhere. Always yeah. looking for, for bits like that to do. But it also, I think it also goes back to, uh, there's a technical side of what you do, which is obviously understanding sound and understanding audio. But I think also there's a structural side to what you do um, as a producer and as a remixer, which comes from probably back in the time when you were learning how to play Motown songs, where yeah. you intrinsically understand arrangement and pop arrangement. And I don't, I get bored very easily. Interesting. <laughs> so if I'm getting bored, then I've got to do something about it. And I, I, I noticed this with Trevor Horn as well. He's exactly the same. Listen mm. to one of his records. Every four bars, there's something new. And in a Motown record, there's lots of drum fills going on. Yeah. And signposts everywhere to let you know what's coming next. A lot of records don't have signposts. You know, signposts are important. You know, you need to feel what's coming before it comes. I like that. I like that. I've never actually heard that word used to describe it, but I really like that. You know what I mean by sound? I do. Okay. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. You can feel and it I, building. You can feel it building. Yeah. And I know you're a huge fan of, a, of, a, of, of well, what we used to call a bridge. Now they call it a pre-chorus. But, yeah, um, yeah, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you love a bridge, right? The whole setup of, again, as you say. It works so much better to have something that sets the chorus up, doesn't it? It's like, here comes the chorus, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I think structuring those, that structuring those records is... And that's where I think getting bored easily is a really good. That was the time warp one. That was, that would have been, that had been released twice before. Yeah. But it had never been structured properly. Mm. And it had a 24 bar verse, I think, in the beginning. And, and mm. I said to Tilly, I said, I want to make this bit of the chorus, the um, let's do the time warp. That only yeah. happened at the end, the let's do the time warp. Yeah. That only happened at the end of the song. Mm. So I took that and made eight bar verses, took what I thought were best bits of lyric and made an eight bar verse and put the the chorus in there. And that's that, that's what put it back in the top 10. Amazing. And yeah. that, and when you were doing those, I suppose when you were, just to finish off on that stuff, I mean, a lot of that stuff was was editing. I mean, it was the re rearrangements. And most of that would have been done with, with editing post having the mix, right? As opposed to editing. You weren't into getting into multi-track editing. No, no, no. Didn't do that. No, but what I, what I used to do was, I mean, you know, you know what an SSL, how to work an SSL, I guess. Yes, I do, yeah. Well, I used to, I used to create lots of different bits on it, sections of the mix, mm. and, and label them, like the intro would be one section, and then the main body of the song, then the middle bit would be another section. They'd all be separate mixes on the computer, and then I'd just run them all off, and then I often used to do it, intro first, then go over the tape machine, splice it to the next bit, and Got it. go along like that. In fact, that's what we used to do before we had automation. Oh, yeah. Um, 
Well, we used to record the intro with about three or four people with hands on everywhere, you know. But I've got the intro. Yeah. Right, let's leave a gap. Let's do the next bit. And then I go and I'll chop it together, see if it worked. And uh, and you build the whole song like that. But that's that's what... It's all part of the learning curve. It is, it? yeah. It's quite hard for again for people to believe this now with everything that is there. But I mean, there used to be a, every, you know, there'd be four people. Everyone had a job. Someone yeah. was turning someone up. Someone That's was right. muting yeah. something. Someone was, was turning, <laughs> yeah. Someone was turning an aux send to a triplet delay. Yeah. It all had to happen at the same time. And if yeah. one person got the job yeah. wrong, you had to do it. It was like again. a take, wasn't it? It was. Like it was. Take. Yeah. It was all hands on decks because there yeah. was, you know, the the idea of no automation. But do you know what though? It was kind of fun as well. Like, because it sometimes was. it wouldn't, you would never do it, it would never happen exactly the same way. And sometimes right. you come across a nice little happy accident. Oh, yeah, a bit of serendipity going on there, yeah. <laughs> so um, when you end, and when you end up parting ways um, after making, you know, arguably the biggest hits of, uh, that happened for, uh, for Stockhead and Waterman, um, what, where did you find yourself? What was your next? Were you burnt out? Were you well, ready I, for the No, world? not burnt out at all. Um, I wasn't getting any work. I was getting oh. all the rubbish. I mean, I did the Boney M album, you know, Reunion. We yes. made all the Boney M records. Yeah. Then I got Shaking Stevens to do, which was a nightmare. A lovely bloke, Shaky, but a nightmare to work with. And in the end, I, I wasn't getting any decent jobs. And I, I don't know what was going on down there. Matt had walked out. Um, I just said, I'm going to leave. Mm. And I'd do my thing. And then I discovered that lots of people had been trying to get hold of me and he wouldn't put them through to me. EMI wanted me to do an album. He said, I'm... Pete's too busy. He's working with Kylie. And I wasn't working with Kylie at all. I'm doing nothing. Hmm. Sitting at home. And it was a lot like that in those last, that last year I was there. Um, and I, I left and I, I didn't know what to do. And then I got offered the, uh, the take that gig. Yes. To produce take that. And, um, and this was the oh, very beginning of take that as well, right? This is round by, this is promises time, right? It was promises. Yeah. yeah. That's the, the record. And, uh, the original demo was fall on the floor. Mm-hmm. I thought I'd go for the American market. I didn't know they were playing what they were playing, but I thought I'd try and Americanize it a bit. So I went for this more American, boof, dat, boof, dat sort of feel with it. And I think it still sounds good today, that record. I heard it mm. on TV the other day. Um, they, they were doing the thing about Take That, and I thought, it still sounds bloody good, this record, you know. It does, yeah. Take That and Party, they had me do. I didn't really like the song in the first place, but mm. it wasn't terribly good. And then Phil and Ian, or Ian, Phil, I think Phil remixed it. So, uh, so where, so where do you go? I mean, obviously, take that's a great one to um, to come out of. You know, yeah. Well, then Zomba, Zomba approached me. Then really, all they wanted was for for me to fill the studios, which is what I did. And then I got this job for Japan, mm. um, which is the um, T- TRF, right? TRF, yeah. The, yeah. Uh, Tom from the boss of uh, Avex contacted me. He said he'd been trying to get hold of me, but he couldn't. PWO wouldn't give me a number. Mm. And he said, so eventually he found me at home. I don't know how he got my home number. Mm. They said, can you mix an album? So I said, um, yeah, okay. So we, uh, I, I spoke to Zombra and they put a budget in and no royalties. They didn't do royalties then, people. Yeah. So off we went on that. And that, well, 30 million units they sold in three albums, didn't they? Pretty good. You know? And I, again, it was just structurally, sort the structure out, do the other, change the drums, all the usual stuff. Yeah, and next thing they they got massive records because Tetsu, Tetsu writes good melodies, you know. And and what's the what's the first? I mean, I'm going to make a make a suggestion, and I'm probably going to be wrong, but the first time that someone comes to you and says, "Could you do something a bit like what you used to do?" It was that Alphabet. It was, yeah. I mean, 
by the way, still extraordinary piece of work, that remix. Yeah, that did, you was, mind, um, did you mind that they were asking you to do a thing that you used to do when you'd maybe no, been well, trying to do something different? Steve, you've got to make a living. <laughs> I know, but, <laughs> I also, but also what was great about it is, is it fitted so perfectly. It did. It was um, in Usher. In Usher. Yes. He, he came to me with the idea and he put the budget forward to EMI and we did it. And then I did another couple for him with Ian as well. And then yeah. the bandwagon, I've, I've done, do you know how many I've done of those things now? I don't, but can I just Hundreds. say, when you say I did another one, I mean, let's be honest, you did that incredible remix of Chemistry by Velvet, which That was, was the second one, yeah. Phew, I mean, that, talk about... I didn't know you were such a fan. <laughs> oh, my God, talk about power. And, and, and do you know what was really clever about it, I thought, Pete, was it did obviously had all of the traits of what everybody loved about what you did then, but it didn't sound dated. It sounded contemporary. It sounded modern. Well, that's what I was trying to do, to be honest. And it was a, it was like you reinvented your sound, but it, all the things that you want, everyone wanted. There was that. There was that amazing Plum record you made that I thought was yeah, fantastic. Yeah, I was going to say Plum, yeah. Which was really good. And then, you know, obviously that incredible pinnacle moment where you get to do Kylie again. and yeah. And that version of Put Your Hands Up, which is... It's just extraordinary. It's like, but again, it didn't sound old-fashioned. It sounded new, but yeah. classic. Well, the, the people on the, when she put it on the website, uh, the, 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 the results from all the, the viewers was fantastic. They all, they were, yeah, they all saying, because do it more, was, do more. yeah, do more, do more. And I mean, there was that, I don't know if it ever got released, there was that brilliant Beyonce one you did for End of Time. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God, that's, I don't, did, did that ever come out? I don't know. No, no. I mean, if anybody's listening to this, I'm going to do. I'm going to share links to all this stuff. That was massive. Yeah, it sounds great. It still sounds good today. Yeah, it really, really does. And I mean, that kind of got you in a situation where you, as you say, people are now now coming back to you to say, "Oh, we love just do what you do now." So, and you have. I don't know whether you like this or not, but you have a sound. Yeah, the Hammond sound. That was the first name of our. (laughs) <laughs> the name of our first group <laughs> but you do have a, like you actually have a signature sound yeah I seem to have yeah I don't know why but you know you wouldn't say that if you listened to the big nasty track that I did <laughs> well no alright okay grunge, but there was that a, was grunge and, and when it get, just just quickly on the, 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 the dance stuff and the dance remixes I mean how did you're obviously going to use some similar things I mean sound wise did you Get, start from scratch did you go back to using sounds that you had used had you kept them did you were you using soft synth versions of the dx7 stuff like that i mean how did you approach your new version of what you used to do um i beefed up the drums more the, the drums but but technically like obviously because you're slightly more in the box yeah, slightly yeah. more like that so is it was it a case i of, did well, use a, a hardware version of the dx7 yeah. i still have my old dx7 that i bought from manfred man along with a Yumi sequencer many years ago. Yeah. And it had lost all its memory. This is when, goes back to when I did Alphabet. And they wanted that sound, so I had to get the bass sound back again. So have you ever programmed a DX7? Do you know, I've never, I have slight, I've tried to program it, but I, when I, yeah, whenever strange. I used, yeah, whenever I used it, it was very much like, I'm going to go for the, the preset. Presets, yeah. <laughs> anyway, I managed to, to preset, to, to remake this, um, this bass sound actually is yeah. the one on the record of it, and I, I subsidised that with a bit of uh, a very smooth bass that had not much character, but just nice warmth to it. Um, yeah, that was from a, a soft synth uh, 
the P53, the old mm-hmm. profit thing, you know. Mm. Um, and that was the bass. Um, the guitars, my mate Roddy played the guitars on those because I, I wasn't adventurous enough to do that, but now I'd all known guitars. Um, mm-hmm. I thought, that, I watched Roddy do it, I thought, I can do that. I wonder yeah. I'll get Roddy in. Because yeah. I still like to correct the timing here and there, you know, as you do. Yeah, um, and they're really it's quite got, fast to do that sort of rhythm. Yeah, I was going to say it's all very kind of Noel Rogers esque, yeah, clean, yeah. chic stuff, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, um, which which fits you right. And what well, about that, that's what we did with Banana Rama. It was it was taken from the Banana Rama. Yeah, you know, I can't help it. Obviously, was the plot for it. Yeah, yeah. Most people spotted that, but um, yeah. And then it's just all soft synths mostly, not entirely. Yeah, uh, the piano. I, I tend to favour. I've got a TG five hundred that I used. I tend to like the piano out of that. Yeah, it's quite bright, isn't it? It's quite yeah, it's sort quite, of b- quite edgy, biting. Yeah, doesn't sound it. great on its own, but sounds great in a track. Yeah, yeah. it does come. I remember hearing the demo and thinking that piano sounds really nice in the demo. You know, when you play the demo with the machine. Yeah. Um, but I use other pianos as well. So yeah, I, I use a lot of soft synths. So. And, as, I, and as I far as pick the same ones. And as far as the actual mixing side of it now, I mean, are you were, were you conscious of kind of going even down to the fact of going into sort of an SSL quad kind of compressor, are you is it still that or have you got new versions of that stuff as well to make it just stick? I don't like too much compression. Okay, interesting. Um, the the I use compression on where it needs to be used on, on voices for instance. Mm. But I always used a always use a very fast attack time and, yeah. and ratio according to the, the, the amount of dynamic range really. Yeah. Um um, but across the mix, it's funny because I use I use an LM. Is it the LM three? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I usually hang one of those across the mix, but only just a tiny doing just a tiny little it. stuff. Yeah. It doesn't always work. Some tracks it doesn't work. Now I, I resort to using another soft compressor, you know. Mm. But um, I don't like too much. I like to keep dynamic range. I don't like to lose all that stuff, you know. Yeah, it's important. Do you still have the same thing of well, well you must do because when you said it to me earlier about when you like when you hear a track you still don't know what you're going to do to it until you actually start is it still that still unless the case there's now? A, unless there's a definite plot you know right. there's a plot but uh, often I don't know I just make it up as I go along feel <laughs> feel what works and, and just well it, it's you've got what, to have a baseline it's works like this you've got to have the drums you've got to have a baseline come up with a decent baseline yeah then you've got to have something rhythmic to keep the rhythm synthy rhythm or guitar whatever sort of rhythm you've got to have something rhythm yeah. and then you've got all your interesting other little bits um little verse bits and chorus bits and and then you've got your strings and your brass or whatever else you want at the top so it's just a building from the bottom upwards really and lots of if you can find some interesting little sounds quirky sounds to put in there in between all that as well yeah um, yeah, that's how I do it. <laughs> I heard Pete, an um, interview with Pete recently, and, I, and I've been lucky enough to sort of see Pete from time to time because of the work that I do with Kylie. And um, he had that fantastic, when you're talking about all the percussive and all the synths and stuff, he had that wonderful expression that he has of what he calls Ricky Ticky. Yeah, Ricky Ticky. And uh, what did he call the strings? Warm length. That's what he described it as. <laughs> I think that was one. <laughs> They used to have all these names they used to write on the desk. And, yeah, Ricky Ticky and Warm Length. One note, we had One Note Theo. And what was that? Just, what, it was... One Note Theo was just something that played just one note on a... Ding, 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 one of them. No, like a cello-y, long, all right. long sort of thing, you know, <laughs> played through verses sometimes. And then we had Ricky Ticky, which was basically the 727. 
Yeah. Um, uh, Funky Joe. Yeah, right. Funky Joe is the thing. Yeah, yeah, the sequence of thing, yeah. Yeah. I hated that sound. Um, I always thought it should have gone rather than ding it. More high energy, yeah. It was really difficult to mix in the tracks, believe me. Really, really difficult. And there are times when I used to take it out and it wasn't, it was just cluttering up really. But other times you could feature it and it worked quite well. And there's always those lovely bells as well, the old D50, D- yeah. whatever they, yeah, there's tons, tons of those. But they, they, various sources they come from, to be honest. Yeah. But but again, that, that again goes through your stuff as well. You're a fan of a twinkly sort of high well, It's only because people want me to do it, Steve. You know, I, I do yeah, what people I, ask I, me to do. I, but I, you know. I, well, I, I, I love, I'm one of the people that I'm happy that you do it and, and you're still doing it down to the fact that you've, you're still doing it and being hugely successful as we speak, your Amsterdam rock exchange remix is doing huge business. Yeah. And I mean, oh, it's, a, it's a good little record and that's Simon Napier Bell. Is it? Yeah. I didn't know that. Simon gave me that job. Yeah. But it's, there you are after all this time, and it's you know top ten. Well, I've got several and... records buzzing around at the moment. Um, yeah, in charts and that they're all. Everyone loves everything I do. It seems nobody ever says a bad word. Do you? Are you still enjoying it? Yeah, I'd, I'd be bored if I didn't do it, Steve. I don't know what I'd do myself. To be honest, <laughs> you know. It's, so sometimes it can get a bit. When you want to do something and you've got to get down and do some work instead, then mm. like, if the weather's nice, I think, oh, I'd much rather go and sit in the garden today. But uh, then you've, you've got to get the job done. Are you good at, um, uh, do you have like a particular, do you have a work sort of day? Do you ha- are you good at sort of a clock no. in, clock off? No. Uh, sometimes I got to start work at six o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Because I've, well, I'm, I'm talking to you on a computer at home now mm. um, in a small room and I've got Cubase uh, running on that and I've got pretty much the same setup I've got at the studio. Mm. I can do an awful lot at home. Mm-hmm. I've got all the samples, all the drum sounds, everything all here. Mm. Um, and I can just copy, copy it off onto my um, – I've got a portable hard drive, whiz it down the studio, load it up down there and carry on with it. Yeah. I, I do that a lot, but I don't go to the studio that much these days. I mean, today was the first time I've been down there for about a week, I think. Okay. Um, I do more and more at home now because I can just – the wife say, let's go for a walk. Okay, let's go for a walk. Save. Off we go. Yeah. And then, you know, go to the pub in the evening. I just do it in bits and pieces. Sometimes yeah. just a couple of hours a day. Yeah. Well, it, it's working. I mean, yeah. it's well, and, you're, and, you're, and it's great that you're still doing it, and it's great that you're still enjoying it. Well, I can't believe I'm doing it at my age, to be honest. I thought when I was a certain age, I thought, well, that'll be it now, but... I never would have given it a thought for a minute that I'm still doing it at my age. I won't tell you how old I am. But you have, a, you have an imperative understanding of arrangement and pop and song structure and production and sound. Yeah, but I get a bit worried now that, that people don't appreciate it. They all want songs that don't have the proper song structure and, uh, um, and songs that are two and a half minutes long and stuff, you know. Some people do. But, I mean, I think there was a really interesting, my favourite quote, one of my favourite quotes from the last six months was Adele said if everyone's making records for TikTok, who's making records for me. So I think, you know... Yes, yes, it's true. I, I, I think you don't have to worry too much about that kind of thing because those that will always be there. There will always be people that want to make, want to just make records that last because no one's got any attention span. So, yeah. And that's fine. They can go and listen to records that last a minute 40. 
That's mm. totally fine. Those records won't be around in 20 years' time. Uh, we won't uh, be talking about them. They won't be talking about them. And I think yeah. it's about... I, I'm a huge fan of longevity and uh, over-trending. And I think there's records we're talking about now that in 30 years' time from now, people will still be talking about Never Gonna Give You Up and, yeah, you know, yeah. songs. And, and songs from now, like the Adele records or... I've always I've always said the same thing that the, you can play you won't a lot of the stuff that's in the charts now you just won't hear in in a few years time it just even in a few months time in it's a few like months time, it's, no. so I don't I think there is a huge appreciation and I think when you look at the albums chart and you look at what people what artists sell out arenas and stadiums yeah you know that's it I, I do love Dua Lipa I must admit I think she does yeah. some great stuff yeah yeah um, great quality control as well. Yeah, very good. Very good, good. So good song structure. All yeah. right, Pete, listen, it's been amazing. And as a remixer, when I was growing up and listening to things that you did, um, it was all, it was so inspiring. And just I'm I'm hugely thankful for Ian Usher's one of my closest friends. And when he when he kind of I'm so pleased he got you back to do yeah. it because yeah. it's fantastic. All right, I'm not gonna yeah. keep you from the pub. No, right. um, lovely to lovely to, uh, to chat to you and I'll speak to you soon. Thanks all a right. lot. See you later.